Welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show, building the collective conscious. Show that's created to give space where your voice, ideas, and informed opinions can be heard, appreciated, and debated. I am Michael Eric Owens. Man, I'm back in the studio. I'm extremely excited about our guest today. Folks, you know what? We I'm always trying to bring about something that educates us, that grows our understanding, not just of who we are, but this world that we live in today. And folks, I have exciting guests. He's a busy man, but he put some time aside to talk to us about Haiti. And I'm with Brian Concannon. He is a human rights lawyer and foreign policy advocate. He's executive director of Project Blueprint, which works for a human rights-based U.S. foreign policy by bringing the perspectives of people abroad impacted by U.S. policy into policy discussions and advocacy. Brian founded the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. Brian, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Well, you know, I, I again, I, I track you down. You know, I was like this, uh, <laughs> like this thoroughbred, and I track you down. I, I heard you being interviewed on a national broadcast, and. And some of the things you were sharing were just fascinating to me. And I thought if I can get him on the broadcast, it'd be worth my effort. So first of all, thank you for being here. And, and just briefly in our conversation, you, you lived in, in, in Haiti for a while. I did. I lived there from uh, 1995 until 2004, uh, which was really an exciting period in my life. Um, you know, living in Haiti was was a privilege and a blessing because people are there are so committed to justice, so committed to democracy. And that was actually a period where Haiti had a an interval of peacefulness, of building democracy. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it really had progress across the economy, education, healthcare, and in my work with, with the justice system. So that was, uh, you know, an exciting time to, to be there. Uh, it makes it sad that Haiti is still 20 years later is still in, in, in tough straits. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to visit there. I really enjoyed my time, but you know, most of the stuff we hear about the country is turmoil. We don't, we don't hear about its history, its culture, its greatness, uh, I want to talk just briefly about that history, and especially as it relates to the United States. Yeah, that's infinitely fascinating. I, I was an American history major in college and learned nothing about Haiti in that time, even though Haiti has had a, a huge impact on, on, our, on our country. Uh, you know, just for starters, uh, close to half of the continental U.S., we got 
because France had lost its war in Haiti, so it had to give us the Louisiana Purchase. Um, the Haitians really get get an assist on that. But really, throughout U.S. history, Haiti has always played some kind of an important role, just as we have played and continue to play an important role in Haitian history, um, not always the best possible role. Yeah, talk about uh, some of those uh, roles that are not so popular for the American image. Haitians will, will when asked that question, will always start at uh, 1803. And in 1803 or 1804, Haiti became independent. And that was the second independent nation in the hemisphere. The first independent nation, obviously, was the United States. And we said in our, you know, in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, we said lots of great things about democracy and liberty. Um, and Haitians felt that that the first independent country would welcome the second independent country. That wasn't true. Uh, the U.S. welcomed Haiti by putting an embargo on the country, by refusing to recognize Haiti for, for uh, 61 years. And the reason why they did that was that uh, Haiti became independent through a slave rebellion. I mean, not only did they free themselves, they beat Napoleon at his prime, you know, one of the more impressive military victories in the history of the world. And obviously an important sort of social victory and justice victory that you went from freed slaves to, to running their own country. But of course, the United States was still had slavery at the time. Uh, a big part of its economy, both North and South was based on slavery. And we could not, literally could not afford to allow Haiti to succeed because that would that would completely erode the underpinnings of our economy, which rested on our ability to convince ourselves that somehow slavery was was appropriate despite the, you know, despite the obvious uh, horror of it. And so we would not we did not recognize Haiti until uh, a few weeks after we President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, there's no accident to that. But even though we recognized Haiti in, in 1864, we still have done many things that that undermined Haiti. And one, one incident that's been coming up lately, especially with the assassination of President Louise, is the issue of the American occupation. Uh, until, until Afghanistan recently past Haiti. Haiti had the longest U.S. occupation of any country. Uh, U.S. Marines occupied Haiti from 1915 uh, until, until 1934. We built roads, we built buildings, but we did not leave Haiti any more democratic than, than when we found it. In fact, the United States um, imposed a constitution on Haiti that gave foreigners more power within the country. It decided who got to be president. Uh, and briefly, in order to build those roads, it reinstituted a form of slavery. And so we really had an opportunity and time to to help build a more prosperous in Haiti. But instead, we mostly put in an army that we could later control that was involved in, in uh, many reversals of presidents who were subsequently elected, uh, but who the United States decided were not serving U.S. interests. Um, another another big uh, inflection point in terms of U.S. U.S. involvement in Haiti. You mentioned that, or I mentioned that that I left in um, in 2004, and that was because Haiti's experiment in democracy was ended when when uh, President Bush decided it, 
Uh, he did not like Haiti's pres- President Aristide's economic policies. And he was not, this was not socialism. This was was not being as free market as President Bush would have liked. Uh, President Aristide was not privatizing things as fast as he wanted. He was he was insisting on a greater state role in public life, including increased education and healthcare expenditures, were, which were certainly justified in a country that had um, less than 50% literacy. But that was against the what, what President Bush felt was best for Haiti. So Haiti's President Aristide was literally uh, pushed onto a a plane. It was a, a U.S. plane that had filed an illegal flight plane, and it was a type of planes that were using they were using for uh, the rendition of torture suspects during the the so-called war on terror. Uh, and President Aristide was whisked out to exile in in the Central African Republic. Um, that that brought an end to Haiti's ten year long experiment in democracy, and to a large extent. What we're seeing now is a direct result of that. Haiti never recovered the level of democracy it had before the U.S. overthrew it in 2004. Um, and one of the sad things is, I, you know, I, I was in Haiti first with the United Nations, and I was part of this uh, group of people from the international community, including U.S. government people, including U.N. people, people from France, Canada. We really felt that Haiti had a chance to develop a democracy, and we felt that the international community could play an important role. And I think we were right at the time. Uh, it just happened that eventually the United States decided that that Haiti's democracy be, was not what the um, was not what the U.S. wanted, and so we ended up pulling the rug out from under something that we had helped build, and that obviously caused great harm to Haitian people for a long time. Wow, that is, uh, it's it's disturbing on one hand, um, and it, 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 it begs the question to me, why? And I when I heard you talk about, you were asked the question about what does the United States want out of Haiti? What, what, what? Is it resources? Is it this? And when you said this, I just, my jaw dropped when you talked about you think it's ideological. And so could you talk about what is, you know, what do you mean by that? Sure. We often, when we, when we look at uh, the U.S. doing unhelpful things in other countries, we often look for a single strategic resource like oil in Iraq and that, that we think can explain uh, the U.S. policy. Haiti does have some strategic resources, but I don't think that any of those are enough to justify U.S. policy. I think it's it's always that Haiti's a bad example of something. Uh, and often it's Haiti's a bad example of actually practicing what we preach. You know, going back to 1804, um, we had, um, you know, all men are created equal in our Declaration of Independence. We obviously did not mean all. We probably meant the men part in the sense not women, uh, but you know we certainly didn't mean all. And then Haitians come along and they say all means all, um, and we couldn't accept that because we couldn't accept our own founding principles. And I think that you know even going up through today, and you look at the period from 1995 to 2004, where Haitians were insisting on a democracy that really was listening to the people and that meant challenging kind of corporate control it meant challenging different obstacles to direct democracy and it meant challenging the the role of countries like the united states in telling uh people in countries like haiti what to do and we decided we just couldn't 
accept that. Uh, that Haiti was was really being a bad example of putting together, put of, of actually having a participatory democracy in practice, and that that was problematic. The other thing, you know, this was this implied, I think, by the by the by the slavery, but you cannot explain any aspect of U.S. policy towards Haiti without uh, raising the issue of racism. You know, the racism has sometimes been been um, quite obvious, um, uh, and especially before we recognized Haiti, I mean, it was it was explicitly uh, justified in racist terms. But the policy continues to have racist underpinnings um, in in the sense that now the way that we don't believe Haitians can can uh, choose their own destiny, they're not trusted. And it's the way that most media reports on Haiti, you, you know, you're always hearing about, as you mentioned, hearing about the trouble and, the, and you're not hearing about the good things in Haiti. You're not hearing about the way that Haiti actually did build democracy for 10 years until the U.S. pulled the rug under. Instead, we just sort of say, oh, Haiti's a basket case or Haiti's always in turmoil, which, you know, some of that has... There are data points that justify that, but a lot of the justification is just is is racist. That you know, here's a country run by black people. Of course, it's in turmoil. You know, it's it, you you reminded me of many years ago. Um, I was given the opportunity to present a paper at a conference on at the Naval Academy um, on a. The conference was called "Turning Attention to Africa." And um, and I did I presented a paper uh, on the media's depiction of Africa. And it was that was what you were saying was the substance of how we view countries that uh, minorities are leading that are in charge of. And, And yes, it's it's at the core of it is is racism. And it it, it's so funny, like how can, you know, the United States basically go in and um, dwarf every type of uh, um, uh, ability to be successful. And then when it fails, say, well, you're a failure. Well, you, <laughs> you kind of set me up for failure. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I just think it's, it's why, why is, why is it that Haiti is just not important in, in, in the Western hemisphere? Yeah. One of the things I always say is that that Haitians are brought into uh, projects at the blame stage, you know, that whether it's just a development project or a government, the decisions are made by you know predominantly white people in places like Washington and New York. Uh, and then when they fail, <laughs> that's all of a sudden you say, OK, you know, these are Haitians. It's a failed state. It's something to do with Haitians. Um, you know, I'm going to actually push back about about Haiti not being important in the hemisphere. I think it actually really is important. And that's the problem. You know, often people say we're neglecting Haiti. Um, I think if the United States had neglected Haiti more, Haiti would be better off. You know, one of the things I say when people say, well, how can, how can Haiti be stable? I say, well, maybe we can you know, get a really big ship and tow it, uh, you know, several hundred miles further away from, from Miami because we're always investing lots of money. The U.S. Embassy in Haiti was recently constructed, and I don't know if it's still true, but it was constructed. It was the second biggest U.S. Embassy anywhere in the world. We have lots of of law enforcement, of intelligence, of you know diplomatic engagement in Haiti, um, we've always 
you know, one example, again, you know, going back to this 2004, when after we, um, we kidnapped Haiti's president, U.S. troops secured the country. And this was a time where we were already uh, struggling in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but we also, we somehow still had time to, to occupy Haiti with U.S. soldiers. Going back to 1950, where we're in, you know, World War One, the biggest war in the history of the world at the time, <clears throat> huge troop commitments. We were still able to, throughout World War One and getting close to World War Two, we were able to have a Marine occupation. So the U.S. is often implies or says that it neglects Haiti, and uh, but it, there actually is this long, consistent history of of involvement, and again, in ways that aren't always helpful to the Haitian people. And what has brought um, them into the news now, of course, is the assassination of the president. And so, um, talk, talk, you know, I was watching a documentary and it was talking about, you know, the gangs there and the, the, the parts of like Port-au-Prince and other areas in which they now control. Um, was that something that, that, shock you or you anticipated that you thought was coming because of the way the his rule had, had turned out to be talk a little bit about that what has come in the news and the importance of it sure there's both a long-term and a short-term explanation for the role of the gangs the long-term explanation is that you know, as in anywhere else Gangs fill a vacuum when the government is not able to provide basic government services. And that includes security services, but also education, health care, economic development. And, you know, the same dynamic happens in the United States and, and almost anywhere that, that you don't have. Uh, the government isn't able to provide services. And that's been happening in Haiti, you know, at least since the, the late 1980s. It's been developing. You know, there wasn't, I think, I've my understanding is there wasn't huge gang activity beforehand, but that was mostly because you had a very repressive government that had a monopoly on the violence. And that since then, since I've been involved in 1995, um, all of the governments have, have struggled with increases in gang activity. Um, they're often outmanned and outgunned. The police force in Haiti has never been adequately funded. Um, and so the police struggle to do that. You also just have, um, a huge economic imbalance that is that is uh, generated by U.S. consumption of of um, of illegal drugs in a way that that allows um, that 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 <clears throat> that generates enough money that you can't that that you cannot that Haitian government cannot really compete monetarily uh, for for drug cartels for the loyalty of its police officers. I mean, I've worked with many police officers who are, you know, took a long, a strong stand against drugs because they believed, they believed in it. But, you know, lots of people were vulnerable to bribes or have been vulnerable to bribes. And throughout the government for the last 25 years, people have been able to be, to be, uh, you know, to be bribed. And the government has been infiltrated by, by drugs, which, and then again, that, that allows a free pass for, for the gangs. Um, but, you know, different governments have had, had better success. And again, you know, during this 19, late 1990s, when you had a democratic success, <clears throat> the governments were, 
seemed to keep the gangs a little bit um, a little bit under you know under control. Since then, you had a coup d'état in two thousand four, and that generated a huge spike in in gang activity. Um, and then you know now what you've had the short term issue is the, the 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 current ruling party, the PHTK, has has been more actively collaborating with gangs uh, for some of it's been kind of run of the mill corruption and and drug trafficking. But some of it has been direct help with with repressing dissent. Um, a report came out by a bunch of human rights, Haitian human rights organizations and Harvard Law School in April, where they looked at just three. There's been there's been uh, over 13 massacres, most committed by gangs over the last four years. And this this human rights report that came out in April looked at three of those massacres and determined that they were crimes against humanity that were done by gangs with government help and they were designed to uh, to oppress and suppress anti-government organizing. So they were they were carried out in neighborhoods where people were unlikely to vote for the, the government as and they were intended to uh, to intimidate people to keep them from voting and to allow pro-government gangs to take control so they could they could control the, the political activity in that neighborhood. Wow. Wow. Any update I you know you hear in the news uh, about um, these mercenaries that have come any any are you hearing any updates are there any closer to understanding what happened with the assassination two different questions getting lots of updates i'm not sure i'm getting closer to understanding what happened with the assassination um one of the i think an important dynamic uh on this is that there there are people who are involved who are good at misdirection and misinformation and are using that to to hide their tracks and so the the um the, the the evidence and reports that have been released they go in several different directions uh you know at the same time so it is hard to it's hard to figure out exactly who was involved and and who who you know who actually pulled the trigger there are lots of questions that have been asked i mean obviously there's the implication of the of the colombian uh mercenaries you know even the colombian government is saying that they think that many of them were innocent they, you know had no idea what was happening but they think that some of them were were in on the plot um you have <clears throat> a lot of people that that could have been set up. I mean, I think a lot of, including a lot of the Colombians were people who were, you know, who were out of work, who were sort of desperate for, you know, meaning and for a job and things like that. Uh, some of the, the Haitian Americans uh, that were living in Florida could fit that profile. And, you know, people who could have been easily lured in by, you know, by powerful actors um, and, you know, either unwittingly participated in something or got framed for it. Um, there's a lot of concerns. There's questions about the, uh, the security team. There's, you know, president Moise was, you know, was shot several times. His wife was shot. There appeared to be no casualties among his security detail. And there were supposed to be 25 and 25 people there. Um, you know, how, how the president got killed when, when no one got hurt who was trying to protect them is, is a good question. Several police officers, including some high level, have been put into you know, either under arrest or put into, I guess, administrative detention. So that is certainly one of the, you know, one of the, um, the, the potential, um, you know, areas of, of suspects. The other thing that, that, you know, that Haitians keep 
telling me that's important, but it's, it's been hard to actually pin anything down on this is the implications of Haitian elites. Um, Haiti's a very um, unequal society, one of the most unequal societies in the world. You have a very small but very wealthy um, um, upper class and then very small middle class. And most people are, 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 um, are extremely poor in Haiti. And the upper class maintains this you know, otherwise unsustainable uh, class structure by, by, you know, by means of violence, by means of political manipulation. And so many Haitians are telling me that, that, you know, it hasn't become clear yet, but they're fairly confident that the economics elite, the economic elites were involved in this in some way. Let's, uh, can you talk a minute about the relationship between uh, Haitian Americans in in Haiti itself is that a relationship where um, they support the country is there a relationship where they're left and they don't want to have anything to do with the country uh, are they doing remittance back to the country what 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 have you what have you noticed between those two groups it's a very important relationship um, Haitians especially the, 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 you know, the people who, who left Haiti were born in Haiti. They keep in really close touch. Um, a lot of them, although that's been harder to do for recent years, but a lot of them go back every year, uh, you know, and even second generation go back every year. They have relatives, they stay in close touch with relatives. The economically um, Haitian remittances dwarfs the government budget it dwarfs foreign aid it dwarfs basically everything else in the haitian economy i mean that that is you know there haiti has more than its fair share of misery but it would have much much more if it were not for the you know, support that haitian americans are are providing um haitian americans are also do want to stay involved in in establishing governance in Haiti. Um, there's there's been persistent efforts to try to allow for uh, for voting of dual nationals um, and for other ways of, of participating. There's you know, this organization within the Haitian American community that um, you know that tries to do open letters or talk to members of Congress or do whatever they can to try to uh, influence and support. Uh, democracy back in Haiti. So, yeah, it's an extremely important relationship. I think to some extent, you know, as with any, as with any uh, immigrant community, as you go kind of down the line and people are more generations away from, from being born in Haiti, I think those ties get a little bit, um, a little bit looser, but, you know, even, even within two generations, I know people who are really, you know, care deeply about Haiti and are still are still involved. People whose grandparents left the country. You live there, so talk about the culture. And for no one that's visit there, what 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 is the culture like there? What are the people like there? Uh, because when we see it again in the media, we all we see is suffering. We see crying mothers. We see you know lack of uh basic uh you know water and things of that nature but talk about because when i was there i man i i, I enjoyed myself I, I there's a culture there so talk a little bit about that for people that have never been there yeah, it's, it's it's as you found out it's i mean it's overwhelming in a good sense you you know you're co constantly 
just immersed in it. People are, you know, there's, there's artwork wherever people can make it on walls on, you know, they have these, these tap taps, which are public transportation and they're really ornately uh, designed and painted with, you know, sort of very thoughtful, but deep messages. There's people, there's music is everywhere. Um, you know, people are always singing, you know, from kids making up, bands with totally improvised instruments that they, you know, things they picked up on the streets right up through, you know, a more formal music scene that's, that's big in Haiti. It's big in, in, in North America. Um, and, you know, one, one, one thing that I always like to tell people that, as you mentioned, that, that haven't been to Haiti, if you've been to almost any other Caribbean Island, you've seen Haitian culture, you know, it's kind of really funny that uh, my wife who also lived in Haiti, when, whenever we've had the opportunity to travel somewhere else, we'll be sitting in a restaurant and th- you look at the, the paintings on the wall and it's all Haitian paintings. Um, a lot of it's Haitians who have gone to those islands or it's just, you know, it's just very kind of colorful, colorful um, examples of, of kind of Caribbean art and that Haitians are just really good at that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and people are, are amazingly generous um, there, there, there's a great sense of a great tradition of hospitality. You know, I've, I had the, the, the privilege of, of doing some like hiking and camping and walking around in remote areas, and, you know, everywhere you go, people are greeting you with a, you know, with a smile, curious about your life, happy to share theirs. Uh, you know, the food is wonderful. You know, pe- most people don't have enough, but it's just a very, you know, creative and spicy uh, interesting um, cuisine. Uh, yeah, it's a you know it was, it was a real privilege to have lived there for for you know for the time I was. It's a privilege to visit there for a, you know for a, a day or two when I can now. Absolutely, they uh, colonized by the French, of course. And so, is that a is that does the French influence still remain uh, among the uh, Haitian people? Definitely. Um, there's the, well, the first, the most obvious is the French language, uh, the, which is a little problematic. So, so the way that the language developed was you had, that was under the French, that was the colonial language. And that was, you know, what, what all the decisions were made. That's what education was done in. The people spoke Haitian Creole, which was a language that developed from uh, from people who were brought from different places, mostly in, in West Africa and you know, brought to, to Haiti on slave ships. And they kind of created their, their own language, Haitian Creole, that was, uh, you know, a combination of, of their local languages um, and with, with French and some, some English and Spanish mixed in. It's a really, it's an incredibly rich language. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been working on Haiti for now 21 years and, and sometimes I think I understand a little bit about Creole and I do if I'm listening to like a court hearing, but then I'll be talking to a friend about legal issues and I'm kind of impressed with myself that I actually understand it. Then someone else will come in the room and they'll start joking and I'll miss everything. They'll be on the floor <laughs> laughing and I'm like, oh, I wish I could get these jokes. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a really super rich and elusive language. Um, and, you know, lots of really clever proverbs and traditions and things like that. Um, in general, it's, um, that is kind of the informal language. That's what everybody speaks at home. And, but in formal places, including courts, including, you know, in parliament, in educational, higher educational um, settings, people speak French. And 
you know, there's some good things about it, but but some of the bad things is that that's been used as a way of control. And so the, the you know, forever starting with the with the with the the French uh, uh, colonists, they just prevented most people from getting an education. So most people couldn't learn French, and then but all the decisions were made in this language that most people weren't able to understand. So there's a you know there's there's a battle kind of being waged with a lot of success over the last forty years to to make Creole, uh, the much more, much more commonly used in courts and in, you know, public discourse and media, things like that. Great. Great. What would you say to the average American? Why should the average American care about Haiti? What, what, why is it important to them? Because we have in the United States, we have this very territorialism in which we think that the United States is the world, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and so why, why is it important for the average person in this country? Um, you know, a couple levels to that answer. One is kind of the, the, the moral answer. And um, I think that is that we, because we have um, – been involved in creating some of Haiti's problems that we have an obligation to be part of that solution. You know, there's obviously the, the religious, as Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of my brother, um, you know, I think Haiti can fit that. I think you know, we have through most, most religious um, practices, there is an obligation to help people like Haiti who need our help, but even more so that, that where we were involved in, in, in generating some of those problems, but a more sort of narrow self interest is that, is that, you know, the U S policy that's been problematic to Haiti and it certainly caused Haitians to suffer. It doesn't make sense from, from the perspective of the average American. Um, you know, it makes sense from the perspective of rice importers, of textile manufacturers, um, but it doesn't make sense from the average taxpayer. And, you know, it's not a big deal, but, you know, but I, you know, some percentage of our taxes goes towards trying to fix Haiti up after we've wrecked it, you know, dealing with Haitian refugees, um, um, dealing with drug interdiction, which is facilitated by Haiti being unstable. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a huge amount out of our, our weekly paycheck, but collectively it is um, if we put it all together. And, and uh, it's really because we have a policy that helps, helps us elites, but does not help the average, the average American person, uh, you know, the bigger picture is, you know, and we can certainly see, in, in the United States, where we're having some more challenges to our democracy, um, you know, a lot of those things, in many of those ways, Haiti is is a decade or two ahead of the United States, um, and not in a good way in terms of environmental degradation, in, in, in terms of um, the the polarization and the the decline of democratic structures, and if we you know, allow that to happen in Haiti or facilitate that happening in Haiti. I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that those chickens are going to come home to roost in for us. Uh, Your last statement is, is definitely so true. And, you know, I, I don't know where we, we turn the corner in this country when, Everything else, even human suffering and genocide and all of those things became 
irrelevant to the average person. And we, we become so, you know, with such a nationalistic view that we don't understand that we are citizens of the world and where there's suffering. And especially if we say we believe in democracy, if we believe in freedom of speech, if we believe in safety and all of law and order is, I guess, the quote-unquote phrase, right? All of us should be concerned when other people suffer, and we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. And I'm just hoping that those who are listening will understand that this is just as important as your local community because it is the community of humanity. Um, do you think that the United States, the Biden administration, is poised to, to you know, change the trajectory of things that are happening, or is this just a low priority for them? You know, that's a really good question. One that 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 a lot of us are struggling with in the current moment. Um, I think that that it is definitely a low priority for the Biden administration. I think that you know they have lots on their plate, and I think that there's they they expect that they have bigger fish to fry than than Haiti, um, and I think that is part of the, the problem. But I also think that that the Biden administration has been um, has been pursuing policies that have been unhelpful. Perhaps it's because of this issue that they just want Haiti to go away and don't want to invest in it. But the way that they've been um, supporting repression in Haiti has actually made things worse than 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 better. I, I think as when the the current ruling parties, the PHTKs, its initials. They've been involved in in repression for for several years and undermining democracy. Uh, the Trump administration supported them in large part because the because Haiti's government supported the Trump administration's um, attacks against Venezuela, especially in the Organization of American States. Um, when the Biden administration came in, a lot of us were hoping that that the um, that we'd have a change of policy, and and, and President Biden did run on a plan form of returning human rights to U.S. foreign policy. Um, so that, that made a lot of us optimistic, including including a lot of people in Haiti. But the, the Biden administration has been, has been um, as time and again passed on opportunities to put that promise of human rights into effect. Um, just a couple of weeks after the Biden administration was was um, inaugurated, Haiti's the, the term of, of Haiti's president Moise was up, according to most experts in Haiti, including the Lawyers Association, the judges, churches, business groups. They all said, okay, his term is up on February 7th, 2021. Um, president Moise came up with an argument that he had another year left in his term that was not uh, accepted widely in Haiti, but it was accepted by the, the U.S. State Department. And that proved to be decisive. That allowed him to stay in office. And, you know, unfortunately for him, it ended up, you know, it ended up with his assassination. A lot of us felt, okay, well, that's, you know, this Biden administration's only, only two weeks into office. Let's give him another chance. But they kept time and again when, when, when they had the opportunity to support the PHTK party or support democracy in Haiti, they chose the PHTK party. Um, this happened right up through the summer when the president Luis was trying to run this, um, 
constitutional referendum where he was going to remove the Senate and really concentrate political power in the presidency. And under Haiti's constitution, like the U.S., it's hard to amend. And the, the whole reason why you make constitutions hard to amend is you don't want a dictator to come in and you know run a sham election that's going to make great changes. Um, and Haiti's constitutional amendment was exactly as unconstitutional as if as if uh, you know president biden or president trump had said i'm going to put up to a vote to remove the senate um but the u.s supported that um and even even now uh you know since president moise's death where the haitian people have been calling for a uh, a government a consensus government that comes from civil society the u.s keeps insisting no we we want a government run by the PHTK party, and these are the people that are that are going to run the elections. Um, and so, you know, where where people were disappointed, but perhaps willing to be patient, two weeks into the Biden administration, you know, we're now it's um, you know halfway through the first year in office, and and you're still having the same policies, despite evidence time and again that this is just making things worse. Wow, disappointing to say the least. What what. If if you could give us some things to be looking out for in the coming days with Haiti, what would those things be? The big, um, you know, the, the big question is this question of an inclusive government. And so the U.S. is they ended up changing their horses in the sense that uh, on Saturday they changed from one person that President Moise had appointed prime minister to to uh, a person that Moise had, rep- had named as a replacement two days before his death. To most Haitians, that's 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 a distinction without a difference that, you know, they're both members of the same political movement and they don't they see that as a different. But what Haitians have been doing is very aggressively organizing um, themselves outside of the government to try to create this consensus government. The international community does not want any part of that, but Haitians keep insisting. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure for, for that to happen. And so what, what I'm most interested in is to see how that balance um, shakes out whether the, the you know the weight of Haitian civil society is is enough to convince the international community to, to allow this Haitian-led solution rather than a, an internationally imposed solution. The other thing that's interesting to me from a, from a uh, political U.S. political standpoint is that that the um, <clears throat> that members of Congress, especially Democrats, um, especially members of the Congressional Black Caucus, but not exclusively so, have been willing to criticize um, Haiti's government and U.S. support for it, which is, to me, a really interesting and promising development. And I've been working on Haiti uh, for during several transitions between Democrats and Republican administrations. And one thing that's held true under all of them is that members of Congress never criticize their their president over Haiti if the president's from their own party. And that happens with Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, it's been really promising that that um, that members of Congress, Democrats, especially on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and with the leadership of Gregory Meeks, who's the, the chair of the, the, um, the House Foreign, Foreign Relations Committee, House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, they've been willing to take a principled stand. They've been inviting patients to testify before their committee. They've been putting out letters, you know, warning the administration of exactly what has happened. Um, and I see that, you know, both promising in terms of 
short term having a better Haiti policy, but I also think it's it's promising in the long term of having a better U.S. foreign policy. I think that it's a you know it's a consequence in part of having progressives elected to Congress um, and who are willing to make the connections that you were talking about before between domestic policy and international policy. And, you know, sort of saying, well, these things that we're doing overseas that are limiting democracy and are, are, you know, concentrating wealth in the hands of the few rather than spreading it to the many um, and involving police brutality. You know, there's a lot of parallels between, between the, between um, what's happening in the United States. And I think people making those connections um, are, are able to articulate a better foreign policy with more credibility and with more, uh, you know, with more power than they have before. So I'm, you know, looking for, obviously it's this dismaying that you've had, you know, 200 years of, 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 of unhelpful U.S. foreign policies. But, you know, one of the places where I do see a big sign of help, of hope, one is obviously the Haitians are going to keep fighting. The other, though, is that that we do seem to have an emerging willingness within uh, within Congress to assert a more human rights based foreign policy. And it, it seems to me it's only logical to want to have stable governments in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, I just that that in itself, I mean, when you talk about from a foreign policy standpoint, uh, I, I think would 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 be most important. Now, are there other countries that have influence in, in Hades as well, other than uh, in Haiti as well, other than the United States? Yes, they're right now who's kind of making the decisions for Haiti, including who named the, the, the prime, the new prime minister on Saturday was, was a group called the core group that involves uh, there's Canada, France, Brazil, and Brazil was involved because there was a peacekeeping mission in Haiti from 2004 until 2017. And Brazil was the, the ran the military end of that. And so Brazil has been involved. Plus they have, Brazil has a lot of, um, Haitians who emigrated to Brazil. Also the Dominican Republic, you know, the Dominican Republic, uh, as you know, shares the island of Hispaniola with Haiti. Um, and the, their, those, the country's histories and people are deeply intertwined, although their relationship has been, you know, has been inconsistent, but the, the Dominican Republic, is, you know, it's wealthier than Haiti. It's about the same population, but the Dominican Republic is wealthier and more developed and has a fairly, um, strong influence on, on what goes on in Haiti, although not at the level of the United States in terms of picking who gets to be prime minister. Now, uh, I want to make a contrast between hope and optimism. Uh, you know, hope is something that we never want to lose, even in the face of defeat. But optimism is something that we believe could transpire. So do you are you do you have hope in optimism? Uh, you know, t- talk a little bit about your feelings toward the future. You know, I've asked the question of hope many times to Haitians, and I almost always get the response um, something like where there's life, there's hope. And, you know, that's, that's kind of sums up Haitians, um, approach to life. And these are people with nothing facing great odds. And they'll say where there's life, there's hope. And, you know, when you hear that, I can't not have, hope, um, you know, with someone with, with much more privilege and much less to worry about. So categorically, yes, I have hope you know, where there's life, there's hope. Um, you know, optimism is, is harder Defined. I mean, I think that we have, uh, you know, as you discussed earlier, we're in a difficult 
period of world history. I, mean, I think we we not only have become so, I mean, we were nationalistic in the sense that we stopped caring about our brothers outside the country. Um, you know, I'm deeply concerned to the extent to which we've stopped caring about our brothers and sisters within the country. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that you know, we can, we can talk about specific policy prescriptions that will improve things, but I don't see any sort of systematic improvement until we can find some way of renewing the sense of community, both you know, within our small geographical area, but also our community as, as, you know, as Americans and our community as, as citizens of the world. Um, you know, to me, we've just got to find a way of, of renewing that. I mean, obviously lots of people have it, but it just sort of seems to have, have dropped to a, a dangerously low level in our society at this point. Um, and so to me, you know, they're, they're, they're the hopes, the hope where I get my optimism is looking at, at where people are organizing, especially young people, people of color, um, LGBTQT folks, um, you know, lots of people that, that when I started working in Haiti 25 years ago, um, weren't, well, weren't organizing at a level where they were, they had an impact, you know, of course, part of it was because their impact was suppressed. So some combination of you know, overcoming the obstacles, but getting more engaged and getting, uh, developing more capacities that made them more effective. So that's, you know, that's one place that I, that I find, I find hope is that people are able to articulate more, um, you know, some of these ideas better, but I'm concerned that, you know, that it's just not enough people. We've got to find, we've got to find ways of, of having more Americans really believe in the common good and understand that, that advancing the common good is self-interest in, in, you know, in the medium and long terms. Brian, this has been fantastic. I, I've learned more in this conversation than I did in my undergraduate and graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> I find that almost any time I talk to a Haitian, you know, and including about democracy. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I went to law school, so I, I, I think I'd understand. I thought I understood democracy, but I went yeah. to Haiti, and you get these people, you know, don't can't even write their names, yeah. but they can ex explain democracy so much better than I can. I mean, it's, that's 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 great, and I, I truly appreciate all the hard work you have done throughout the years and, and this calling on your life to not only work there, but to bring back uh, the knowledge to, to uh, the collective that, that needs to understand and needs to be mobilized. How, how if folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? Uh, so uh, my website is uh project it's a project blueprint and the website is blueprint 2021 uh, .org. um i can yeah you can send me an email which is beconcannon at gmail.com and one thing if people want to keep in touch of what's going on in haiti um i have i try to send the good articles, put the good articles on my Twitter feed. And there's a lot of good stuff coming out now. So it's a pretty active Twitter feed. Uh, and that is Haiti justice. So if you just, you know, follow me there, you'll get lots of, of good analyses about what's going on in Haiti, especially directly from grassroots and, and Haitian activists. And I will, I will also uh, attach those links to uh, the show. Uh, so folks can, can get in touch with you. Thank you, my friend. I, I appreciate you being here on the One Might, One Voice show. 
It's been educational. It's been fun. I have to say, man, I'm I'm, I'm sorry about the Celtics, man, but we celebrate. You know, I you know, <laughs> I, I got to throw in Milwaukee's been 50 years, and it's a place I was uh, born and raised in. And uh, man, I, I can I wish I was back there now to celebrate with them. But it's good to see a small market do big things, and 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 hopefully, this will more to come for small markets around the country. Yeah, I'm excited by that. You know, I try to hate the Bucks when they're beating the Celtics, but I just can't. They're just such a fun team, and they're just so good that I, you know, I can't hate them. And you know, really exciting that a small market team was able to pull it off, and they, you know, seems like they're doing it the right way. So Absolutely. congratulations to Absolutely. Milwaukee. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for being on the One Might One Voice show. You know, you did bring out something that uh, stuck out to me. Um, this this idea of what, when you ask the Haitians about hope, well, the model for South Carolina is while I breathe, I hope. And folks, we can never lose hope. We have to stay focused. We have to believe that justice will uh, it will come around if we if we if we work on it and we work together because clearly we can we can make this world a much better place. And folks, as always, history will speak of us. Somewhere in the distant future, a scribe will reach down deep into the archives of our time. And what will she find? Will she find that we overcame our differences? Will she find that out of many, we became one? Or will she find that we solved nothing and remain a divided peoples? Yes, history will speak of us. All we gotta do is work together. Gotta raise our children better. We gotta stop the hate, stop the hate, and spread the love. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. Thank you for downloading the One Mic, One Voice show. Take a moment and subscribe and share. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or any other podcasting platform. Thank you for your continued support and for your voice. You can change the world. It's your choice. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the One Mic, One Voice show are not the views, thoughts, and opinions of our sponsors.